Welcome to A Beggar Who Found Bread. I'm your host, Brad, and I'm a beggar. I found bread, the bread of life, the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth. I hope to make others hungry for this bread so that they'll enlist and join the battle. This episode, The Struggle Within. Props to Metallica for the title to this episode. Bay Area metal band Metallica, to whom all other metal acts are compared. They pretty much are. I mean, they set the bar very high, gotta say. Now, after the death of bassist Cliff Burton, Jason Newstead of Flotsam and Jetsam stepped in, and he recorded one album with Metallica and Justice for All. He left the band because the band's focus shifted after that more to fighting Napster than producing music. Does anyone remember Napster? Come on. <laughs> Well, he also had uh, some medical issues going on as a reason to step aside from the band. His neck, back, and shoulders needed to heal from so much thrashing. Okay, that's legit. That's a legit metal injury. And you would think that, I don't know, he could have had some kind of a rider on his insurance policy to cover, like, thrashing injuries, man. That should be a thing. The search for a new bassist began with several notables auditioning. And the job ended up being earned by Robert Trujillo. Trujillo? I don't want to say it wrong. Anyway, he was previously bassist in Suicidal Tendencies and also for Ozzy Osbourne. And he's been with the band ever since. Alas, it's not about Metallica or the music. It's about the message, the struggle within. This episode is going to be a bit of an exhortation built off of part of last week's Torah portion. And for those without a schedule, last week's Torah portion was Genesis twenty-five nineteen through 28 and verse 9. And this is where we begin to learn of Jacob and Esau, twin brothers born to Isaac and Rebekah. In Genesis 25, starting at verse 21, we read, Isaac prayed to Adonai on behalf of his wife because she was barren. Adonai answered his plea and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. But the children struggled with one another inside her. And she said, If it's like this, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of Adonai. Adonai said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from your body will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other people, but the older will serve the younger. Now, there are many ways to go examining Jacob and Esau, their codependency and trust issues, just for starters. For today's purpose, we're going to look at Rebecca's struggle within. The children struggled within her, two nations. And I'd like to look at a parallel of the struggle within every human and where we should focus our efforts in spiritual warfare. 
we should recognize the Hebrew understanding of the spiritual being. Within each person is the nephesh, which is the soul. All living creatures have a nephesh, a life force in this present world. It is often referred to as the animal soul. It is temporary. When the goof or flesh dies. Yes, goof is actually a Hebrew word for flesh. I know. It's kind of goofy. But anyway, it's real. It's the thing. It's a thing. When the goof or the flesh dies, so does the nephesh. It dies. The neshama is the eternal spirit which comes from Hashem. It is concealed within the flesh. The eternal concealed within what is finite, temporary, our flesh on this present world. We have discussed on previous episodes the nishama, which is implanted in each human, and it has, it has a yearning to return to Hashem, the, the nishama does. And with our heart, soul, and body, we navigate through this life trying to find that connection with the Holy One, blessed be He, to reconnect with Him. And this journey can take each person through difficult times seeking to fill that void, as Pascal referred to it, with so many other things. Ultimately, only one will satisfy that hunger, the King of the universe, Oftentimes, the words soul and spirit are used as synonyms interchangeably, and this is not an accurate use of these terms. I've, I've done it myself. I know I am guilty of this, saying soul and spirit and kind of meaning the same thing when saying it, and that's not a correct application of those words. We see a distinction in the fourth chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, and in verse 12, we read, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing right through to a separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of Adonai pierces through to a separation of soul and spirit, judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is a distinction between the soul and the spirit, the nephesh and the nishama. This is the cause of some of our internal struggle. The nephesh, the soul, is focused on sustaining life here and now in this present world, olam hazeh. Our, our fleshly desires and appetites come from this. It is also where Evil inclinations are developed, whereas the nishama or spirit seeks to fulfill its purpose in this present world that it may then return to Hashem and dwell in Olam Haba, the world which is to come, having a portion in the coming kingdom. I believe the Apostle Paul describes some of this struggle in the seventh chapter of his letter to the Roman believers. In this portion of his letter, 
Paul is addressing the Jewish followers of Yeshua, natural born and proselytes. Throughout his letter, he changes uh, his, the people of focus that he's addressing. He changes he changes gears, addressing sometimes the Gentile believers, sometimes the specifically the natural born uh, Jewish believers, and then at times the those who were Gentiles who were proselytized became Jewish and are now followers of Yeshua. And sometimes he addresses all three at once. In this portion of the letter. Uh, he definitely appears to be addressing Jewish followers of Yeshua, and it would be, in this case, I believe, the natural born as well as those who are proselytes. And I bring that out just for some context. As we, we should know, Paul is a Torah-observant Pharisee, a Jew of Jews, as he states elsewhere about himself. Romans 7, beginning at verse 12. So then, the Torah is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Therefore, did that which is good become death to me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin working death in me, through that which is good, so that sin might be shown to be sin, and that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful." I'm interjecting here myself right now. So Paul is speaking of the Torah and how it illuminates what is sinful behaviors by, uh, by either shining light on what the righteous behavior is or by revealing what the negative or sinful behavior is. That's what Paul is referring to here. Back to verse 14. For we know that the Torah is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing. For I do, for what I do not want, this I practice. But what I hate, this I do. So I'm interjecting here again what Paul is saying here. His flesh does not want to obey the Torah, though he practices it. It's his, it's his inner man's desire that he would do it, that he would practice it. But he ends up doing what he hates, which is sin. In verse 16, he continues, But if I do what I do not want to do, and again, if he does what his flesh does not want, which is obey the law and commands, then I agree with the Torah that it is good. But if I do what I do not want to do, then I agree with the Torah that it is good. So now it is no longer I doing it, but sin dwelling in me. Pause here. The evil inclination within that opposes Hashem's Torah is what he's referring to here. So it is now, it is no longer I doing it, but sin dwelling in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For to will is present in me, but to do the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But the evil that I do not want, this I practice. But if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I doing it, but sin that dwells in me. 
So I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I delight in the Torah of God with respect to the inner man, but I see a different law in my body parts battling against the law of my mind and bringing me into bondage under the law of sin, which is in my body parts. Miserable man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? So here we see the struggle within the Apostle Paul as he graphically is describing his inner turmoil. Now, this may cause some to consider the words of the master, Yeshua, to three of his disciples. It was John and James, the sons of Zebedee, and Peter, who were all tasked with praying as Yeshua entered the Garden of Gethsemane to surrender himself to the will of the Father, preparing for his torture, and execution, death on a crucifix, uh, uh, on a crucifix or on a um, torture stake, execution stake. When Yeshua arose the first time from, he was in the garden praying, expecting that the other three were outside, just outside praying as well. And when he arose the first time, he found his disciples sleeping instead of praying. And he said to Peter, keep watching and praying so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The more we put our flesh under, the more we discipline it to the ways of Hashem, subdue it and force it, if you will, to submit to the word and will of Adonai, the more we will walk in victory over the evil inclination of our flesh. Now, I know that there are many who teach about, they talk on, or engage in spiritual warfare, um, like to, they teach it, as focusing on targeting the adversary, the dragon of old, the devil. And there is certainly some application to that. Personally, I believe the first place we must engage in spiritual warfare is within ourselves. And I believe this to be the primary focus of scripture on this topic. If we do not subdue and overcome the enemy within, so to speak, how do we think that we will effectively come against the kingdom of darkness? Before any soldier goes out to engage an enemy in battle, he spends significant time disciplining himself, conditioning mind, body, and soul. No one just says, hey, you, yeah, those guys over there, they're our enemies. We hate them. Here's a gun. Go kill them. That's not how that's supposed to work. We read in Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you are able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the worldly forces of this darkness, and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, 
so that you may be able to resist when the times are evil and after you have done everything to stand firm. Stand firm then. Buckle the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. Strap up your feet in readiness with the good news of shalom. Above all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. All right. So it is clear. Paul understands that we do have an adversary, the devil, Ha-Satan. Why does Paul tell us in this, in this portion of his letter to the Ephesians, why did he tell them and why is it important for us to take up the whole armor of God? Why are we encouraged to do so? Two statements he makes in there when he says to take up the whole armor of God so that you are able to stand against the schemes of the enemy, the devil, and so that you may be able to resist when the times are evil. As the master said, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And where Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, he's referring to physical enemies here. We are not going around lopping people's heads off and, you know, running them through with swords and spears. The subduing of our flesh is very much a spiritual battle. This is one of the benefits, actually, of fasting. When we fast and we pray, it's to train our bodies that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of Hashem. It's important and it's a discipline I can certainly tell you. Uh, I will I will uh I will gladly confess it is one of the disciplines that I need to work on and I need to improve is fasting. And not not for the the health benefits, which there are there are definitely health benefits to it, and, and not fasting to Try and get um, convince God to answer a prayer of mine. I think some people do that at times, like they want a certain outcome with something, and so they they fast and they pray, um, or um, you know, fasting for for other various reasons. I believe it is something that we should do as followers of Yeshua, children of the Most High God. That it is a practice that we should have in ourselves as as a dip, discipline, keeping the flesh under, so to speak. And, uh, it, you know, when we read, I want to encourage you also, please, um, back to, sorry, back to, yeah, man does not live by, by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of Hashem. And so I want to encourage you to please read Ephesians in its entirety so that you can see the context of what Paul is writing here in this in, in this chapter. This is not just like a quick rabbit trail that he ran down after talking about marriage relationships, comparing them to the mystery of our relationship with Adonai Elohim, the Lord our God, through Yeshua. And then he discusses other relationships, and from there, he didn't, he didn't just go, oh yeah, um, and go out and fight the devil. Gear up, folks. That's not what this is about. 
each of the elements, the pieces of the armor of God, which Paul describes, are founded in the Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, if you do, or if, if that's how you refer to it. Um, they're all referred to back back then. That's where the, the armor of God has been established from the earliest times. <clears throat> and in a previous episode, we did take the time to break them down a little bit and as far as the source and the application for each of these parts of the armor. And so this is established long before Roman soldiers walked the landscape. The armor of God was firmly established prior to all of that. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, we read in chapter 10 and beginning at verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but powerful through God. For the tearing down of strongholds, we are tearing down false arguments and every high-minded thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Messiah, ready to punish all disobedience whenever your disobedience is complete. So, tearing down these strongholds, false arguments, and every high-minded thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Messiah. These are internal battles. What's being discussed right here, those strongholds, we have to overcome things that are strongholds in our own lives. We have to, within ourselves, tear down any false arguments and every high-minded thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, that, that conflicts with our faith and trust in the Most High God. We have to tear those things down. And we take every thought captive to the obedience of the Messiah. We can't take other people's thoughts captive. We cannot, you know, taking, taking thoughts captive. We're not trying to take the thoughts of the devil captive. When, when Paul is describing these things, he's talking about internal battles, the struggle within. Paul writes about fighting against our own evil inclination, overcoming the desires of the animal soul. And to yield our nishama, spirit, to the commands of El Elyon, God Most High. And then, when we take every thought, right? We've done all these other things. We, we have torn down the strongholds, the false arguments. We have come against every high-minded thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God within us. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of the Messiah. And then, once we've accomplished all that, we are ready to punish all disobedience when our obedience to him is complete. We're not going around punishing other people for disobedience. We punish the disobedience within ourselves by obeying Hashem, by doing all these other things, taking every thought captive, and we're obeying him. And in doing all of those things, we punish disobedience within ourselves. 
And there, there are many psalms which have themes of, like, they talk about the enemies, uh, whether it's attacks of the enemy or vengeance against enemies. Um, and I, I'm just going to touch on a few of these, but like Psalm 3, um, which David wrote when his son Absalom formed a mob to kill David. And it says in Psalm 3, Arise, Adonai, deliver me, my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You shatter the teeth of the wicked. In Psalm 13, uh, we read, How long will my enemy triumph over me? Psalm 31, Because of all my adversaries, I am the contempt of my neighbors and a dread to my acquaintances. Seeing me on the street, they flee from me. I'm just grabbing these few here. There's plenty other examples within the Psalms and the rest of Scripture about uh, that refer to enemies, our enemies, and there are, again, many other examples, and some of which speak of what the writer was dealing with, like in Psalm 3, what they were dealing with in that present moment. Others were prophetic words of what was to come. I believe in all these things, though in their, some in their context were certainly speaking of a specific instance, like Again, Psalm 3, what David was dealing with there. But I believe that we should see the spiritual application for ourselves in these things. First and foremost, before we go making war in the heavenlies, we must win the war within. And it's a daily battle, folks. There are a couple of stanzas in the Amidah which is one of, one of the daily prayers. And in uh, a couple of these, the stanzas within that prayer, they speak of defeating enemies, of informers perishing, adversaries being uprooted, extirpated, and so on. And I believe this to have an internal application. And that it is, and that's where my mind is focused when I pray these prayers my mind is focused on internal, what's going on with me that I want uprooted, that I want removed. And it would be easy to think about maybe a coworker who made me mad or someone who mocked my faith on social media or that person at church who just really doesn't get it like they need to. Those are not my enemies. Or at least what I'll say is I'm not their enemy. I need my evil inclination extirpated, uprooted. I need my fleshly desires removed, uprooted. That's what I need done within me. Those are the enemies of my relationship with Hashem. As, as is written in the scriptures, the, you know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, those things that are, are within us that we must overcome. And I've said this before, but I believe it, repeat, it bears repeating. We read in each of the four Gospels of the encounter when Yeshua cleanses the temple. I'm going to read from John chapter 2. It's also found in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 20. Here's John 2, and we'll start at verse 13. The Jewish feast of Passover was near, so Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, 
He found the merchants selling oxen, sheep, and doves, also the money changers sitting there. Then he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple, both the sheep and the oxen. He dumped out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those selling doves, he said, Get these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, people love Yeshua's righteous indignation here. And there are many who have justified their own behaviors, comparing themselves to Yeshua in this situation. And those behaviors are usually directed at other people. Why did they? Well, Jesus got mad and he, he ran those people out of the temple. And so they, they justify their own actions and behaviors towards other people, um, and comparing it to what Yeshua did here in the temple. I personally believe the single greatest application of this zeal and righteous indignation is associated with the cleansing of the temple. Now, multiple times in New Testament writings, followers of Yeshua are referred to as the temple, the temple of the spirit of Elohim, the temple of the Holy Spirit, or we are living stones being built into this spiritual house. So if we want to get indignant and find faults, grab a mirror and get violent. Go to war against what is going on in the temple, ourselves. That's what we need to clean up. We need to get the things that are in there that should not be in there out of there. Get a whip of cords. Look at the word of the living God and find out what's not supposed to be in the temple and get rid of it. We turn what should be a house of prayer into a den of thieves, of prostitutes, gluttons, liars, and murderers by our own behaviors, our thoughts, our words, and our actions. We're supposed to... Oh, may the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Even, even our thoughts, the meditations of our heart, our words and our actions should be pleasing to the Most High. Now I know it's much easier and it's even more fun to find faults in others and fixate on those, which one, is never going to change the behavior of the other person when we fixate on those things. I'm sorry, because most often that information is simply used for gossip and rumor spreading. That's what it's used for. And it deflects from us having to look at ourselves when we fixate on the behaviors of others. So it's not going to fix it's not going to fix that person the way we think they should be fixed, and it's also not improving our own relationship with Hashem. We are not drawing nearer to God by fixating on other people's sin. We're not. If you really like finding faults, once again, grab a mirror and go to work. Cleanse the temple. 
And beyond fault finding and nitpicking on others, there are those who get really worked up in spiritual warfare, like, you know, fighting the devil, I suppose, and with, with passionate, mouth-frothing prayers, denouncing the work of the enemy, and it, even addressing him in their prayers. And I, I'm not, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to denounce, not trying to, uh, to, poo-poo the idea of praying as far as coming against the kingdom of darkness. I'm not, I'm, I'm not against that, and I don't believe scripture is against that. But I, I just want to caution folks, like the devil, Hasatan, is not omnipresent. So kind of addressing him willy-nilly, you know, like specifically and personalizing your words towards, directing them towards him, I just, I think while you are praying to the Most High, that seems at the very least wasteful and potentially dangerous in some ways as well. So just a word of caution there. But I believe that the greatest impact we will have against the kingdom of darkness is in building the kingdom of Messiah, the kingdom of light. And this begins with the inner working of God within us, ourselves, and then expands as we seek to see others delivered by Yeshua to be reconciled to Hashem, building his kingdom. The outer man is perishing, but the inner man is renewed day by day. It is as though there are two nations within me, each one struggling to occupy the territory of me. And as Paul described this inner battle, it, I mean, it sounds, the way he worded it, it sounds almost hopeless. And many people use some of Romans chapter 7 to justify their own sinful behaviors. Even Paul struggled with sin, so who am I? Obviously, if he sinned, I'm going to sin too. It's just what I'm going to do. And that's not the point of what Paul is writing here at all. He's presenting the solution to the problem of this struggle within. For I delight in the Torah of God with respect to the inner man, but I see a different law in my body parts battling against the law of my mind and bringing me into bondage under the law of sin, which is in my body parts, miserable man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God. It is through Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself serve the Torah of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua, for the law of the spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is victory in this battle and struggle with sin and the flesh. The victory is found in the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth. We are set free from the law of sin and death, which is the wages of sin is death. We are set free from this because of Yeshua. Paul is not touting himself as the example. He's doing what all scripture has done for all time. He is pointing to the Messiah, Yeshua. 
Paul is not licensing anyone to go out and sin without consequence. That's not what he's doing here. He is pointing to the remedy, the one who was in all points tempted as we are, yet he was without sin, Yeshua, the one who overcame the evil inclination and subdued his flesh in obedience to Hashem. Oh my goodness. Romans 8 really brings all of this together. And I realize that's, I'm extending out and I'm going beyond the topic that we're discussing today. So important, though, to get the context of Romans, because Romans 8, among others, is is just one of these chapters that is really twisted into just bad direction and bad doctrine. So, please continue. Study to show yourself approved of God. Dig into his word. And daily, go to war. Start your mornings off. Start your day off by warring within And then be geared up to fight the external battles you will face, remembering we do not fight against flesh and blood. In your studying, your fasting and praying, sharpen yourself to be an effective witness of our master, Yeshua the Messiah. Let's go out and give him heaven. I want to thank you for your time. And until next time, may the favor the Master, Yeshua the Messiah, found in the eyes of Hashem, be upon you and all your household. May God look favorably on you, and may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, reign in your hearts and minds in the Messiah, Yeshua. Grace and peace. Thane Shalom.